How are you, buddy? Love the socks. <laughs> you alright? Things are well? It's yeah, likewise. Thank you for doing this here. No, thank you. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. So we've known each other for a while, but I used to know you by a different name. <laughs> Verb. Yes. So I need to know, after all these years, I have to ask you, where did that come from? Uh, so the nickname Verb came from grade four. Okay. Uh, when uh, some of the uh, boys on the on the playground at Crestview Public School, we used to call each other by our last names. So there was uh, Ginsburg, okay. there was Floro, there was Rabinowitz. So Ginsburg became Gins. Okay. Rabinowitz became Rabin. Okay. Varani became Ver. V-I-R, ah. and then the boys just altered a bit and became vert and verts and then verb. And then verb. And verb stuck. And it stuck. From grade four till about uh, law school. Until law school. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you still see those guys from the playground? Uh, of course. Uh, yeah. yeah, I do. And, and people who are grandfather or grandmother are allowed to use the term. They're allowed. Okay, so certain people still use that. Yes. And it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I give them permission. Yeah. That is good. That is good. Um, well, listen, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Um, like yourself, you know, our family came from Uganda as well uh, in, in the 70s. Um, I, I don't, you're probably not old enough to remember coming, coming to Canada. Um, but that, that experience and, and knowing that experience, um, has that shaped sort of how you live and the things that you've done? Yeah, I'd say a thousand percent. So yeah. you're absolutely right. I was ten and a half months old when we landed here in Montreal. Okay. So I don't have any active yeah. recollection of the journey, but um, everything that my parents have talked to me about, and my sister has some faint recollection. Mm-hmm. Um, she was about four and a half. Uh, has sort of informed sort of that transition about being newcomers in a new country. Yeah. What that reception was like, what the challenges were like. Um, it. You know, you can't help but face challenges when you're sort of a different skin color, different religion of, mm-hmm. the, of the majority of a community. Uh, but you take advantage of the opportunities that are put before you. And it's helped me in terms of sort of what I wanted to do with my life in terms of being um, involved in social justice causes, human rights causes, yeah. causes that relate to things like challenging discrimination, things like that. Yeah. And it's informed even my, not just my legal career, but also my uh, parliamentary career thus far. So, Interesting. Yeah. What what did um from so from Montreal did you guys come like straight to, was Montreal sort of you landed and you came straight to Toronto did you guys know no you we know? spent a few years in Montreal okay um and uh, so from seventy two to seventy four we're in Montreal okay so a couple of years so my my parents formative contact and first initial contacts in Canada were in Montreal yeah so they still fondly I think in some respects that informs the fact that me and my sister both ended up at McGill. Because my mom wow. and dad have very fond memories of going and seeing Bonhomme du Carnaval at the Quebec uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Winter Carnival Festival. And uh, the embrace that they got was an embrace by Canada, but it was also an embrace by Montrealers and by the province of Quebec. And they felt very, very welcomed and they really liked the city. Yeah. But um, economic circumstances, job opportunities, mm-hmm. um, uh, some of the gravitation of where uh, different Asians and uh, Ismaili Canadians were settling meant that they moved to Toronto in 74. Yeah. But uh, there's a bit of a love affair, I think, for the whole Varani family of Montreal. Sure. Yeah. What did what did uh, mom and dad do when they came here? What was sort of their career? I'm assuming mom would stay at home and take care of the kids? Um, they both, uh, sort of. My uh, 
my, I guess my daddy, uh, uh, my ma, as we called her, was with us. So uh, my dad's mother. Yeah. And she helped out with some of the childcare stuff at home. Okay. Uh, both my mom and dad were working, but my dad ran a sports shop in Uganda in Kampala. Okay. And he ended up working at Murray's Sporting Goods. And, uh, Why does that name sound familiar? Murray's Sporting Goods is a very well-known store right in downtown Montreal. It's so well-known okay. and so long that... Uh, 20 years later, when I get to McGill yeah. and I need to sharpen my skates, yeah. I would go to Murray's Sporting Goods on okay. Street to sharpen my skates if yeah. I was playing intramural hockey or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that thus began my dad's love affair with Canadian sports because okay. he was working with co-workers. All he knew was cricket and tennis, being in Kampala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he moves to, to Montreal and he's working at Murray's Sporting Goods, stringing rackets and things like that. And the boys there, you know, his French-Canadian co-workers say to him, well, we're going to go watch hockey. And my dad says, what's that? Yeah. And they say, you don't know? And he's like, nope. So they take him not just to watch it on TV. They take him to the forum to watch Lafleur wow. against Bobby Orr and the Bruins. Wow. So he immediately falls in love with the game, falls in love with the hockey. And, and thus passes it on to you guys. Passes it on to the offspring, which is good. Nice. Very, very good. So. And in Toronto, did he do work in sports as yep. well? Yep. So he worked at Slazenger Dunlop in Toronto. So, okay. Um, he'd been one of the main suppliers for Slazenger in uh, Kampala, yeah, in Uganda. Yeah. So. He um, obviously had that connection with the company and worked um, for um, Slazenger Dunlop here uh, for about 15 years. Yeah. Sort of the mid-70s to the early 90s. And he, I guess he passed that enjoyment and love of tennis to you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you play as, as, as a young kid? or? Oh, a ton. A ton. Yeah? I've been playing tennis since I was seven. I still play tennis. You still do? Yeah. Still okay. That keeps, keeps me honest. Taking out some political frustrations on hitting the tennis ball <laughs> is, a, is a very good thing. It's, yeah? Uh, it also keeps me a bit somewhat... It's not the best lifestyle as a parliamentarian, so there's too many snacks and fatty appetizers yeah, and yeah, yeah. wine and crudités, so need to stay active a little bit. So I, I can imagine. Tennis is... Yeah, Sunday morning is usually my tennis time slot. Very early Sunday morning. Okay. Um, well, well, I know back when you were you were sixteen years old, you sort of had a brush with with fame in in the tennis world. You were you, you were a ball boy. Was that at, at uh, I don't know what would they have called it then? Was it like, like it was called Canadian the Players National? Challenge? Players Challenge. Named I after that. Named after players' cigarettes. The cigarettes. That's ba- right. Back when cigarette sponsorship of sporting events was still appropriate. Yeah. No longer allowed. Um, Tell me about that. That was. I will say with all honesty, that was the best job I've ever had and probably <laughs> ever will have. I, I earned $10 a day. Yeah. Uh, but I was a ball boy at a tennis tournament for eight straight days. And I was on the court with people like Roger Sanchez, Gabby Sabatini. Wow. I was I was Martina Navratilova's ball boy. And after that match in particular, because she's such a legend, yeah. um, the towel that she used to wipe the sweat of her brow, I took that towel, I shoved it in my bag, and I kept it for 10 years. Only 10 years? Only 10 years. <laughs> I, I wrote her initials on it. and uh, But it was great. I got a pair of K-Swiss running shoes, a, of cool, a cool t-shirt, and uh, I was in absolute heaven. There's no better job for a 16-year-old. You need to put that on your resume, on your LinkedIn, or something <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah, it, was, it was tremendous. Yeah. Where did the... You, you, you go into law, mm-hmm. um, and, I'm, and I'm very curious in terms of... Um, what what happened in your life or what attracted you to law? So I was always a bit, I wouldn't say uppity, but I was I was quick with the retort when I was younger. Okay. And I've heard that from my parents, but also from... <laughs> That's a polite way of saying yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> there was always a sort of like, if, if like when I was about six or seven, I've heard stories from my aunts and uncles where they're saying, okay, it's time to go now. And I would always challenge them, well, why do we have to go? Yeah. Like, what's the next step? Like, what are we doing next? So there was a bit of a sort of a... 
a, a challenging sort of defiance in me from a young age. Okay. Uh, and I, I not only knew I wanted to go into law, but I knew I wanted to argue, right? Because okay. I liked, I liked sort of debate and argument. So okay. there are obviously various kinds of lawyers, right? There's yeah. lawyers that help you with a housing transaction or a corporate deal. Sure. There's lawyers that go and make arguments in court. And I wanted to be the latter, the, the lawyer that goes in and makes arguments in court. Yeah. And it was just, to me, it was just a steady evolution in terms of like, I was the guy who was always the debating type in, in high school. I joined the McGill debating team in undergrad. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I, when I first met the Prime Minister, actually, we were both on the McGill debating team. Uh, oh, no way. Yeah, Justin okay. and I and, uh, and Jerry Butts, his principal advisor. Um, so it, those are sort of formative times for me. And yeah. leading to law school, it was just the next step because I wanted to be a litigator. Okay. Uh, the um, and it was also a way of persuading my mother that a political science degree was a useful endeavor because, like most South Asian parents, they wanted me to go into engineering or medicine. Yes, so of some, course. Some of the worthy scientific disciplines. <laughs> and I was studying a science that no one had ever heard of called political science. Political science, uh, which which leads you to not too many job prospects. Uh, no. So, so it, it but was, you knew law was sort of the next step. I knew law was the next yeah. step. And you don't have to have an undergrad degree to study law, but most people do. And yeah. Politics was also a bit of a passion of mine. And I always was interested in government and yeah. understanding politics and how it works and political concepts. Were we ever involved in sort of the youth organizations? Only a little bit. Like yeah. I wasn't very partisan uh, in terms of affiliations with things like, you know, uh, young liberals or okay. young uh, any other party, etc. Um, I went to some events. I was definitely involved in things like World Affairs Conferences, Model UNs, things yeah, okay. like that. Okay. Uh, in my youth, like 16, 17. But I wasn't sort of um, uh, uh, getting on board with any particular political party at that young age. Okay. I came a bit later. Okay. Well, that's not, now, I didn't know you when you went to school with the, the current prime minister, so I must ask you. Um, you know how? Who was he? How was he as a uh, as, as a student? Did you see sort of? Yeah, he's going to follow in his dad's footstep footsteps, or, or did you kind of see him doing some other things? I'm just curious about that. So we didn't have classes together, but okay. we met through the McGill Debating Union, okay. and uh, obviously there was notoriety. We're in Montreal. You sure. know, this is the Pierre Trudeau's uh, uh, oldest son who's yeah. uh, studying with us. So everyone knew of Justin, and uh, but he was not. Uh, 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 at all egotistical about his background or arrogant, which was mm. nice and it was disarming. Yeah. Uh, and he was a good debater. Mm. Uh, I remember we used to have French and English debates and uh, he would excel at the French debates in ways that Anglophones from Toronto like me would not excel. Sure, sure. Uh, and he was just, he was a very social individual and very sort of very much a team player. Yeah. Uh, at that point, I didn't have a sense of sort of uh, where his political okay. uh, aspirations might lie, but yeah. obviously... Uh, with that kind of lineage, you you know you think th those things might be in the offing, but it wasn't sort of crystal clear at the time. Interesting. We were all just sort of just honing our skills about you know taking what we learned in class, yeah, and translating it into debating the issues of the day, yeah. Uh, and it was it was fun. I mean, the McGill debating team was tremendous. I mean, it's, it's a good institution. It's been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It gave us the opportunity to, to go on road trips with one another and travel to different uh, tournaments, uh, whether that's in New England or in different parts of. Uh, Central or Eastern Canada, so yeah. it was a good bonding experience. Are there things that you debated back then that, as a country, we're still debating today? Well, that was the time of Beach Lake. So wow. Beach Lake in Charlottetown. So yeah. it was uh, unity is, 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 has been an issue. It's a bit less in the forefront now. Yeah. But, you know, we have an eight-member caucus of Bloc Québécois MPs on Parliament Hill, so mm -hmm. sovereignty is still an issue. Yeah. Um, obviously, Justin, like his father, was a strong federalist, as were most of the McGill students. But those are issues that still ah. germinated, for sure. What um, what impact did, did going to school at McGill in Montreal sort of have on you? 
I think it was it was a bit formative in terms of my appreciation of sort of the the duality of language. Mm. Um, I hadn't studied French actually. I was one of those classic. Oh, ones. okay. Uh, well, I took my grade nine credit in French, and that was I, it. And then I dropped French. Wow. And I, but then I came back to the French language during those four years in Montreal. Yeah. And it was kind of fascinating because I took a immersion course at Trois Rivières, one of those six week immersion courses where they just take anglophones and they dump them into them in a family, a small house. small family, yeah. a small village or a small town. It wasn't that small a town. Trois Rivières is the third biggest city in in the province, but um, but it was immersion. If you spoke English three times, you were sent home. And I learned French. Yeah, I learned a lot of French. And, yeah, uh, but I came to it as an adult, right? So at that time, I'm that must have been hard the way to learn. It was hard, but um, I, as it turns out, I have some facility in language. So, okay, good. Um, so I learned French there, and then the time in Montreal, I started volunteering at a hospital, speaking in French to the patients. I took a French language conversation course, and then I ended up doing things like I worked on Parliament Hill in between undergrad and law school, and I worked with a French MP. Okay. Uh, and then I worked at the Quebec Human Rights Commission during my first year of law school. Yeah. And then I did a semester in law in French, uh, in civil law at Laval. So with those formative experiences, by the end of the 1990s, yeah. I was at the point where I could carry on a very decent conversation. And today, the you know the party puts me on French panels for interviews. And I've done interviews on Radio Canada and things like that. Wow. So And I can deliver speeches in French, etc. So it's come a long way, but it was as an adult. And I think those years in Montreal honed my understanding about the importance, I think, of the French fact in Canada, yeah. French culture, Quebecois culture, mm-hmm. and understanding Quebecois politics, I think, Quebec politics. When you, when you started, when you came back to Toronto U of T for, uh, for law school, mm-hmm. um, did you sort of uh, hone in on a direction in law that you wanted to take? Uh, yes. I mean, it was very much sort of aligned with sort of my poli-sci. I studied poli-sci and history as a joint, as a joint degree at McGill. Mm-hmm. And I sort of loaded up on what we call public law courses. Okay. So first year law is kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a grind. All the courses are just dumped on you. You don't have any choices. Yeah. And second and third year, I took courses that dealt with either my interest in litigation, so trial advocacy and litigation training courses, okay. or things like constitutional law courses, comparative constitutional law courses, mm. evidence. So there's some folks that study sort of the business end of law, sort of like they load up on tax and mergers and oh, acquisitions. Okay, yeah. I study more of the sort of the public law oriented okay. stuff, which dovetailed with my general interest about rights, how you govern a society, how you regulate competing rights, like freedom of religion versus freedom of expression, mm. that kind of stuff. So that's what I was always interested in that in undergrad, and I continued that in law school. What was it about that that interested you? Well, I think it's just basically... One, it's being a South Asian Muslim man with brown skin in a uh, white majority society, so being sort of other, and how things like the Charter are rights-protecting instruments that are important for in, in ensuring the equality that we all hold dear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean that in any cliche sense. I just I think that's it's actually quite fundamental. Yeah, okay. Um, and then uh, the other aspects were just... I just found it intriguing. Like, when you're dealing with how you reconcile religion... like. Canada is a multicultural society. We, we, we proudly brandish that around the world. Uh, but there's always competing tensions about how much freedom of religion should groups have, how much expression, freedom of expression should groups have, how far should we push equality rights. So back then in the, in the 90s, the debates were 
and continue to be, but uh, same-sex rights were just coming to the forefront. Mm. We were just entrenching uh, same-sex uh, as a, a protection under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms through some uh, case law. Uh, but things like same-sex marriage were still 10 or 15 years away, for example. Yeah. But those kinds of uh, issues, how we reconcile, how we treat people of different skin colors, different religions, different faiths, different sexual orientations, that to me just, it just always resonated with me because I think I've always valued and sort of pedestaled some of the great civil liberties champions. Mm. Like people ask me who you're, who, who are some of the, the people you admire the most, and I usually cite the three M's, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. Mm. Um, because, and they were all people that were at the forefront of defending rights, whether it was sort of the rights of the Indian nation or the rights of black uh, population in the United States. But those were people that were pushing the envelope to assert rights and promote equality. Yeah. I, 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 you, you, you cite people that are in the States and in, in Mahatma Gandhi in India. Um, are there any Canadians, I'm curious, are there any Canadians that you, uh, you know, whether you look up to or, or, or whether that, you know, our, our children can sort of. Uh, look up to in, in the in the coming years. Well, I think I definitely have a soft spot for the prime minister's father, right? So for mm. Pierre Trudeau, um, I think that's in, that was informed by sort of like the legend that I read about when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was informed by the fact that you know it, it wasn't lost on me that when seven thousand of us mm. come here in nineteen seventy two, that was a big big deal. Yeah, um, it was the as I've learned about it, you know there was patterns of immigration through this country that were predominantly British oriented. Then there was Post World War II, there were some waves of refugee exoduses, but they were still again white European orientation. So you had mm-hmm. the Hungarian uprising in '56, the uh, Prague Spring in '68, but in 1972 to open the doors to 7,000 brown-skinned Ugandan Asians was a huge, huge deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for Pierre Trudeau to stick his neck out like that for a community that was very different from the, the norm in Canada, yeah, I felt a, a, a bit of a sense of indebtedness. But there's also the tremendous and soaring intellect that he was, the champion of freedoms, the, the man who said, you know, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. Yeah. So going back to that same-sex issue, like decriminalizing basic uh, aspects of, uh, of same-sex relationships, like those are the kind of significant leadership decisions that you can't help but admire somebody with that kind of vision uh, and that kind of fortitude. Yeah. UFT, you, you kept busy, not just at law school, but you were, you know, I t- took a look at your resume and you, you did tons of things. You won a bunch of different awards. Um, how did how did that sort of form and, and, and mold you? The U of T was great because, I mean, it was a lot smaller than McGill. I mean, the law class was about 180 people per year. Mm-hmm. So I was coming from a school of 20,000 to like a faculty of about yeah. 500 people in total. Um, and what was great about U of T was, one, the quality of the t- instruction. Like, it's, it's a very fine law school with very fine uh, instructors, both both tenured professors, but also uh, practitioners who are practicing law who came in and taught. Mm-hmm. But you're also surrounded by really smart people, right? And people yeah. have this perception of U of T like it's rat race, it's cutthroat, it's all these super bright kids sure. from all over the continent who are going to sort of tear pages out of textbooks. And that wasn't really what I found. I mean, I oh. definitely found some people that were a bit maybe too competitive, but what you found was, wow, like there's a lot of smart people here that you can learn from. Uh-huh. And I did learn from my classmates as much as I learned from uh, the professors and the instructors. Um, and it just opened the doors to different opportunities, right? So I did mooting and we able to, were able to do really well nationally and then do a, uh, comp- do a competitive moot against um, other countries from around the what world. What does that mean? So mooting is sort of a, a fake uh, legal process. So it's, okay. like a, it's a, a mock trial. Oh, okay. It's okay. a moot. And I did international law. 
and uh, and it resulted in my favorite story because we mooted against the Malaysian team. Okay. And the Malaysians laughed when they heard my name. They said, they said your name's Arif. And I said, well, yeah, Arif is, is, a, is a stronger pronunciation. They said, well, you know what your name means? And I said, well, it means like wise or wisdom. They said, oh, yes, it does, like prophet or sage. Okay. And they said, in Malaysia, we don't refer to judges as your honor. We call them Ya Arif. Oh, wise one. Oh, wow. So they said, if you were a judge in Malaysia, you would be a Arif, Arif. Yes. So I said, well, maybe I should, I should write the bar in Malaysia then. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, a, but it was, the U of T was, it was just, it was an awesome, awesome experience for those students, those, those practitioners, the chance to do like things like the moot court competition, mm-hmm. be surrounded by a lot of, and I ended up doing an international human rights internship, which is a program at U of T. Okay. And that took me all the way to India for my first time ever, right? Yeah. My ancestry, as you know, is, is as a Gujarati, a smiley, but that's, hundred years removed wow. but I went back to Gujarat and I did work on caste discrimination and it was amazing and that's the kind of door that was open to me because of U of T having these kinds of programs that's neat how long were you in India for at that time at that time so I took a year off between um, uh, summering at a law firm and articling and during that year I did a three month stint in India doing that caste uh, that internship on caste discrimination mm-hmm. and then I spent five months traveling in East Africa and in the Middle East yeah so I just wanted to see a bit more of the world I wanted to see where I was born yeah I went back for the first time so. that, that's, that's, that's heavy stuff going to India and, and um, arguing about caste cause that, that's sort of like the, it's a very cultural ingrained thing yeah. uh, I'm curious what did you what did you learn there about that whole stuff I learned that there's a lot of entrenched discrimination. Mm. Uh, I learned that it's something, the most poignant thing I learned is that something that we take for granted in Canada, which is this concept of the rule of law. Mm. And I'll give you a tangible example. When Mike Harris was elected in this province in 1995, and he was there, he or his party were there until 2003, certain legal decisions were made that related to, again, to same-sex issues. And Mike Harris's government didn't necessarily agree with those decisions, but when the courts ruled the Harris government changed the law because mm-hmm. they respected the rule of law and the authority of the courts. Yeah. In India, untouchability and caste discrimination has been against the law since 1947 because the Indian constitution was written by a person who was himself a Dalit and untouchable, a guy named Dr. Ambedkar. Okay. Notwithstanding that untouchability and caste discrimination has been against the law since India was created as an independent nation in '47 discrimination is rife around the country mm-hmm. because you don't have that same respect for the constitution and the rule of law in India. Mm. So there's a difference between what's written on paper and what's observed in oh. villages and towns around the country. And that basic difference in, in the lack of the rule of law and respect for the rule of law is what holds uh, India back in some respects. In other respects, it's a tremendous nation, right? I yes. don't mean to, uh, to, uh, to diminish the accomplishments. I mean, it's the forefront of IT communications, it's a, burge, it's a huge economy that's developing incredible, at an incredible rate. But there's still some historic tensions that are literally thousands of years old. You're not yeah. going to turn that around on a dime. But there's some steps that need to be taken. And as a lawyer, that's what struck home to me is that we have decisions in Canada that are rendered and we follow them even if we don't like them. Yeah. And in India, there are decisions because I was working on decisions and trying to help them interpret Supreme Court decisions in India. But there just wasn't an appetite to implement them. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you finished law school. Um, what was your, your first step into the quote-unquote real world? <laughs> so I ended up working as an associate at the firm that I had uh, I had worked as a summer student twice and then articled at the same firm. Uh-huh. So it was a firm on Bay Street called Faskin. At that time, it was called Faskin Campbell Godfrey. Then it became Faskin Martino Dumoulin, and now it's Faskin Martino. 
lots of law firm mergers happened. And, yeah. Uh, uh, and it was tremendous. I mean, it was a great experience for me. Uh, I wasn't uh, sort of privy to that kind of environment. Having come here as a refugee, my parents didn't go to university, and here mm-hmm. I was. Now I've got a degree from McGill and U of T, and I'm in the middle of Bay Street. Uh, you know, I was making good money, and I was learning from great uh, lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, notwithstanding the great experience I was having, there was a bit of a... There was a bit of a push to do the practice kind of law that I was interested in. So, what were you? What sort of law were you doing? At, so, I was at doing I was doing corporate commercial litigation. Okay. And it was very intellectually challenging, but it wasn't sort of internally satisfying. Mm. Um, and uh, and I have great respect for the colleagues that I worked with, and I'm still in touch with many of them. Uh, and there's a lot of tremendous lawyers who do work in that area, but my heart was in more of sort of that equality sort of rights-based approach to law the, the sort of the charter stuff the uh, the human rights stuff that i'd always been sort yeah. of passionate about so i spent a couple of years in uh at the firm and i did a litigation training scholarship i received a scholarship called the fox scholarship which is awarded to just two people in ontario every year wow and i was able to go to britain and train with barristers at the middle temple which was a great honor so i learned litigation skills from them wow and then when I returned, I felt like I was a, I was becoming a good litigator, but I still wanted to be doing cases that were slightly different. So that's when I applied for and received a job with the Attorney General's office mm-hmm. in doing constitutional law. Yeah. And did that for the next 13 years. So when you were in England, mm-hmm. you took salsa classes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's two questions here. Either you like dancing, yeah. <laughs> or you said, I, I need to meet some people, I don't know, you, you wanted to meet some girls in England, and so you said maybe this is a good place to go. Tell me about that. So it was, uh, you've obviously done your research. It was, it was a little bit of both. Okay. Um, if you've been in Britain, you'll know that uh, British men aren't the best dancers. All right. Um, so <laughs> I do like dancing. I've yeah. always liked dancing. Uh, and uh, so I went to the salsa class. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, well, hey, I like dancing, and probably a good opportunity to meet women. And lo and behold, I met the woman who eventually became my wife. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it was uh, it was lots of fun, uh, but where we were living was sort of like this great sort of graduate student environment. So mm-hmm. I was doing this postgraduate sort of training year with barristers. My wife was doing her masters in international public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Okay, there was people there doing. Was she Canadian as well? She's yeah, okay. yeah, she's but just like me, right? She's a South Asian Canadian. Okay. Uh, uh, she was born on the Rock in Newfoundland. Uh, wow. Okay. And uh, her family had come from India much more recently, right? So my family came three generations three or four generations from India via East Africa to Canada. Her family came just literally one generation ago from, from Uttar Pradesh and places like that. Wow. Um, and uh, she, But she was there and it was fortuitous because I don't think I would have met her otherwise. No. You know, I didn't spend too much time in Newfoundland prior to that. And uh, we met and, uh, and the rest is sort of history. How's your salsa dancing? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, still, we still dance. Okay. In fact, we're dancing in the Nutcracker Ballet tonight. Um, oh, so the Nutcracker Ballet is being performed in the in in my riding that I represent. It's thirty two years running. Yeah, and there's a tradition that the elected local elected representative participates in the Nutcracker. Oh, and when they said, "Would you be interested in doing that?" I said, "No, I can dance." And my wife can really dance. My wife is a trained Indian classical dancer, so she's flawless. So she can dance. She's a performer. Okay, yeah. so people yeah. just won't look at you. They gotta forget him. She, I'll let her lead. The, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Um, So shortly thereafter, you said, you know, you go into public service. Yeah. um, uh, Ontario government. Again, what were you doing there? So I was working in the constitutional law branch. So I was basically uh, arguing cases on behalf of the Attorney General of Ontario Mm -hmm. uh, where the charter or or basic constitutional issues are being raised. So I got to work on things like defending the Smoke-Free Ontario Act. 
So when we ah. implemented smoke-free policies in, in Ontario, there were charter challenges, people saying, well, there's a freedom, effectively a freedom <coughs> that's protected under the charter to smoke. It's part mm. of the protections under freedom of association. I dealt with cases that dealt with freedom of expression. We still do a small amount of film regulation in Canada, in, in Ontario, that relates to things like bestiality and obscenity okay. in, in terms of adult, uh, adult sex films, etc. Yeah. So I was dealing with cases that dealt with freedom of expression, freedom of association, equality rights. Wow. So it was right in the wheelhouse that I wanted to be in, yeah. right? because it was all the stuff that I'd studied in undergrad, studied in law school, stuff that I cared about, stuff that I was passionate about. Because, you know, for any of your listeners that are lawyers, the one thing you need to, or aspiring lawyers, mm-hmm. whatever you do, you will you will be working hard. And I just thought, if I'm going to be working that hard and putting in those long hours, I may as well be interested in the subject matter that I'm dealing with. Yeah. And finally, I had that sort of, that connection to the subject matter. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, how long were you there for? I was there from two, for 13 years. 13 years. Yeah, right okay. up until deciding to run for office. Interesting. So, I think during that time, um, you had another opportunity to go to India. Is that is that right? Yeah. So my wife and I took uh, before uh, mortgages and before babies. Sure. <laughs> uh, we uh, we decided okay the time is ripe let's let's uh, let's take a, a little sabbatical. So we took a sabbatical and we went to both India and East Africa. Okay. We spent a year in each. Yeah. And this time I wasn't in Gujarat but I was in Delhi. Mm. Um, my wife was working on uh, polio with the WHO, World mm. Health Organization. So it wasn't just for travel, it was just going to do no, something. No, we, we went to do yeah. something, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I was working with a human rights NGO called Com- the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative. Yeah. And I was doing work on police reform. And again, wow. and again, what resonated though, it's 10 years later from my first time in India. Yeah. And the same issue was arising because we had Supreme Court jurisprudence in India that dealt with how police need to be more accountable, how to reduce police corruption how to ensure that there's more community-based policing. And although there was great jurisprudence, it wasn't being translated on the ground in Bihar, in Orissa, in Kerala, wherever you went, it was the same sort of problems. Some states were better than others, but there was still a lot of challenges. But it was an amazing, amazing year, and I worked on my Hindi a great deal. Okay. Uh, so my Hindi is quite good now, to the point where I can knock on somebody's door in my riding and speak in Hindi to them. So that, that helps. Nice. Yeah. Better than my Gujarati, to my parents' lament. To your yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it was a great, great year. And then we spent a year in Tanzania, so it was great to be back in East Africa. Yeah. And I was able to work with the UN as a war crimes prosecutor on the Rwandan genocide. Now, when I, when I read about that, I, I read about that, and I'm thinking in my head, you were like, that's... You know, there's we've got all these Marvel movies that that are on, and you know, superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if your kids love that stuff, but my son just you know, we have a to do list, a whiteboard in our living room. Yeah. You know, and there we write down what we're going to do this weekend. And he always goes in there and watch Star Wars, right? Um, but when I read about what you were doing with that, I'm going, here's like a almost like a real life superhero going after <laughs> the bad guy. Um, I'm I'm curious. Uh, uh, about your experience there, it, it, both I'm thinking it was probably both very rewarding, but maybe also very heart wrenching. I'm I'm, re- I'm really curious about that. I think that's exactly it. Right? Yeah. It was it was eye opening. It was extremely humbling. Right, it's not too many people get to prosecute genocide. It's a uh, it's it's a very significant uh, issue. Obviously, the the most uh, significant crime known to mankind is, sure. is genocide. Um, but it was difficult. The subject matter was horrible. Yeah, absolutely horrible. It was, you know, rape was an instrument of war. Um, it was a systematic persecution of, of people that took place with clinical efficiency, but it was executed largely by with machetes. Yeah. Um, so it was very, very difficult to sort of get your head around it and to deal with it and try and deal with it dispassionately as as lawyers are trained to do. Yeah. 
Um, it was rewarding. It was also frustrating, though. It was frustrating because of pragmatic components, right? We were dealing with English, French, and Kenya, Rwanda. It's hard to cross-examine someone when there's three different languages that could be spoken at any one point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, the UN itself is a tremendous institution, which I have a lot of respect for, but it was sort of glacial in its pace. It was costly, right? Mm -hmm. So I was learning about other methods of local justice that were being meted out in Rwanda itself, sort of local village sort of justice that was what's called the gachacha system. Mm. They were able to process things much faster, much quicker, and much much more expeditiously. Mm. So it opened my eyes a little bit, but um, it also what's hard right now, to be very honest with you, is that you deal with these things, and we dealt. We, there had been Srebrenica in 1992, mm -hmm. Rwanda in 1994, and then you return to now, and you're still seeing, you know, incredible persecution of religious minorities at the hands of Daesh mm. uh, and the Islamic State. You're seeing the persecution of the Rohingya Muslims right now in uh, Myanmar. So history is keep, it keeps on repeating itself. And it's, it's what was difficult with the tribunal, the UN tribunal, is that it was created after the fact by Western powers who mm. felt really quite guilty for not having intervened in a contemporaneous manner. Yeah. And now we're seeing things unfold again. And there's sometimes there's barriers that limit international intervention. So justice needs to be done and meted out when genocide happens and ethnic cleansing happens. But it's still shocking that it is still such a... I wouldn't say common tool, but it, that it still exists. What's um, what's the official Canadian stance in terms of responding to things that are happening, for example, in Myanmar? So we've been very, very active, but one of the things that we're trying to work on is that we need, like, you know, people classically say, you know, Canada invented the peacekeepers, right? So why don't, you know, Mike Pearson got a Nobel Prize for creating this. Let's send in the peacekeepers. And that's a fine response, but you need to have the cooperation of both states that are involved in order to send in peacekeepers. Mm -hmm. So when Canadians were in Cyprus, the classic example most people remember, the Greeks and the Turks agreed to having a, a UN force, and mm -hmm. Canada fulfilled that rule. Right now, we don't have cooperation between the Bangladeshis and the, and the Myanmar government to have a peacekeeping force on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're doing is we're trying to respond as best as we can to the current circumstances. We've put a ton of aid into, into the refugee, refugee exodus that is now in Bangladesh. Uh, we have uh, sent a special envoy, a man of impeccable credentials, Bob Ray, mm -hmm. you know, a statesman in his own right, who is our special envoy to the region. We've had very dis direct and terse conversations with Aung San Suu Kyi and the Myanmar militia that's really calling the shots here. Uh, we are directing a lot of aid on the ground. We had a, a matching funding campaign that I personally lobbied hard for because I would talk to Muslims here, but also around the country. And even, you know, non-Muslims, it wasn't really a religious breakdown. Sure, sure. Just right-thinking individuals said we need to be doing more. If we're raising money, can the Canadian government match it? So we implemented a program like that. So we're trying on several different areas. We're trying to stimulate more discussion about it at the UN level. But until we have the Myanmar government ready to accept international troops on their land, we can't just go in there, otherwise it's basically an invading force. Mm. Uh, so it's delicate and it's difficult. And all the while that this is happening, people are disappearing. Yeah. So, you know, bloodshed is occurring and a huge refugee exodus is being created. And uh, it's a struggle. It's, a, it's mm. a huge struggle. But we're doing the best we can within the circumstances. And I think the response thus far has been a good one. Yeah. Uh, but um, we're certainly trying to do more. Mm. What made you decide to get into politics directly? So I'll tell you in all honesty, it was, it was sort of four things, right? Like going back to, you said, who do I admire? So I always yeah. admire Pierre Trudeau. I read a great book about him when I was 16, right? Mm. Most people are like, I used to read like basically hockey books and then I used to read some political books. It's a okay. weird, weird combination. Um, but uh, so when I was about 16, eight, 17, 18, I thought one day I might want to run for office. 
but then I parked that, went to McGill, learned how to do my laundry, you know, went to law school. <laughs> you know, just you just become an adult, and then yeah. I tried to be a good lawyer. Uh, but then around you know 2010, 2011, you know, I've settled down. I'm living in a great community. I've bought a house. Uh, I'm thinking I want to. If I want to do this, how do I do this? Yeah. I get involved in uh, the local riding association. Um, the the Liberal Party turned a corner. There had been some bad years where there had been some uh, leadership battles, things like that. Um, Justin Trudeau becomes the leader. Mm-hmm. You know, is a friend of mine from McGill. Yeah. Um, I appreciated what he brought to the table. That he was unifying the party. Um, I also was interested in politics because I, I genuinely like engaging with people. I've never been introverted. I've always been quite extroverted. And I find myself as an advocate for causes, as a lawyer. So advocating yeah. for community was okay. And then the last piece is probably the most significant piece. I just was really fed up with Stephen Harper. Right, Nine years of Stephen Harper was just enough for me. It just I didn't like what he was doing with the country. I didn't like his approach. Um, I didn't like the divisions he was creating. If you remember the 2015 campaign, it was quite a divisive one. Mm-hmm. Things like barbaric cultural practices, hotlines, Hotline, yeah. you know, uh, pretty, pretty direct Islamophobia with respect to the niqab ban and yeah. the, uh, the uh, citizenship ceremonies, a ban that courts had found was blatantly unconstitutional. Yeah. But again, a lack of respect for those kinds of decisions. So, you know, I think it just got to a point where I was tired of sort of chatting with, you know, my friends over uh, drinks or uh, over a meal about complaining about the current government. I thought, let's do something about the current government. Wow. And that, for some people, that just means getting involved. That means making sure. a donation, taking a sign, being a volunteer. Yeah. But for me, it meant I'm actually going to put my name in the ring. Wow. So that's why I did it. How different is it, uh, a life as a parliamentarian versus, I don't want to say a regular lawyer, but, you know, yeah. what, what's, what's sort of the difference? Besides, you know, we're here on a Saturday morning and you've got a full day ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's, it's busier, that's for sure. There's a level of sort of, I mean, I guess I should have known this, but everyone trains you to sort of win a nomination then win an election. They don't train you to how, for how to be a parliamentarian. They just yeah. sort of expect you're just going to figure it out. Sure. And it takes some time. I mean, I'm still figuring it out. It's only two, I'm only two years in, but um, you are a public figure. Uh, what you say reflects on your party and your government. Yeah. Um, you are sort of always um, expected to be a certain way or, or present a certain way. So, you know, I can count on sort of two hands the number of times I don't shave on the weekend now. Mm. Right? Most guys don't like shaving on the weekend. I hear you. <laughs> so, but now I shave on the weekend, right? So, you just, so there's a sort of public persona component to it. Sure, sure. Um, there's a component of sort of... Um, this, it's been hard on my family I'll be candid with you mm-hmm. uh, I've got a, a three and a half year old and a six and a half year old and they like their dad they want to see their dad more often yeah I'm sure you want to see them too yeah and Toronto to Ottawa is not a huge jaunt I get it I've got colleagues from the Yukon I don't complain about my travel schedule with my colleagues from the Yukon yeah but you know Toronto to Ottawa still means less time in, in Toronto and, and a lot of time in Ottawa so that's a bit of a challenge um, my wife has been incredibly supportive, but it is difficult on yeah. any family. Um, and we're not a political family, quote unquote. Like we yeah. didn't really understand what we were getting into. Mm-hmm. But she's been a rock of support, and I love her to death uh, for that. Uh, the, but on the upside, it's been pretty amazing where you feel like you can actually move the yardsticks on a significant issue because mm. you're on the inside. Yeah. And another reason why I ran for office was I spent a lot of time as a lawyer working to help create a legal clinic that's called Salco, the South Asian Legal Clinic of Ontario. Yeah. And Salco basically fits this niche of sort of targeted services for people who are South Asian, so they could be Indian, Pakistani, they could be um, from Sri Lanka, etc. 
uh, it gives them services that in a way that addresses their language needs and their cultural sort of sensitivities. We didn't have a clinic like that. We had a clinic for Chinese Canadians, for African Canadians. Mm. We had a clinic for Francophones. We had a clinic for Indigenous people. There's nothing for South Asians. And we all know what Toronto looks like. There's yeah. a huge South Asian population. So a few of us thought, well, we should have this clinic. But it took us nine years to go from idea to fully funded status. Wow. And that what that taught me is that, you know, might have been helpful if we had an ally on the inside. On the inside. Because ultimately it was a political decision to make that clinic a, a, a freestanding entity. Ah. So what I wanted to be was that ally on the inside. Okay. And now that I am that ally on the inside, we yeah. can do things like, again, Stephen Harper cut uh, healthcare for refugees. Yeah. Which I thought was an atrocious decision and the courts thought the same. Not only did we restore that, that healthcare, but we improved upon it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was in my role as parliamentary secretary to Minister McCallum in that first year mm-hmm. when we were elected. When I was working on immigration matters, I was at those decision-making tables. I was involved in, in sort of decisions about what is it going to look like and how can we not only restore it but actually improve it. Mm-hmm. That's satisfying. Like yeah. You can't do that unless you're a parliamentarian. Yeah. Right? And that's ultimately why people run for office. I was going to ask you know, certain things that you've achieved and, and that being one of them. Are, are there are, and anything else, you know, more, I don't know, more locally in the writing that, that, you've, that, you're, that you're proud of? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a few things sort of in the writing. One is that we're trying to stimulate the discussion about things like active transport. And active transport mm. is basically things like, you know, walking, jogging, cycling paths, things like that. Okay. And that when you talk about a green policy, a green orientation of government, mm-hmm. you're not just putting money into subways. All the subways are critical. We just opened sure. six yesterday, which is great. But you're also doing things like promoting uh, uses of cycling and mm-hmm. bike shares. Yeah. So, you know, it was not just my advocacy, but it's a number of uh, MPs that have been advocating. So we've got more bike share stations in the city of Toronto. We've got seven new ones right here in my riding. That's just a way of encouraging people to use a more environmentally friendly and healthier form of transport. Yeah. One thing that I was very, very proud of is that, um, again, with the, with the Harper government's perspective on sort of immigration, they also had sort of pet targets. Uh, the Roma community uh, was a pet target, right? So people from Hungary and the Czech Republic, pejoratively known as the gypsy community. Okay. Uh, the Roma community um, was in the crosshairs of Stephen Harper and Jason Kenney for a long, long time. Oh. And there was a family that lived in sanctuary in a basement in a church in my riding for 18 months because they couldn't actually leave the, ba- the church basement for fear of being arrested and deported. Eventually, they were brought out of the church basement and they were deported back to Hungary. And they suffered uh, grave injustices in terms of their legal proceedings and in terms of not having a proper evaluation of their refugee claim, which was a very meritorious claim. Within three months of becoming a member of parliament and a parliamentary secretary, I worked with Minister McCallum's office and we brought that family back. So I was very, very pleased with that. But on a macro level, like I can't even begin to express how satisfying it was to have come here as a refugee, landed at Mirabel in October of 1972 yeah. at the age of 10 and a half months, and then to work with Minister McCallum and to be there uh, when we received that first plane load of Syrian refugees at Pearson, to be with the Prime Minister and Minister McCallum, Minister Philpott, Minister Sajjan was there as well, and to receive those newcomers and to be, to be part of that exercise because it was literally full circle for me, right? Like mm. Pierre Trudeau, the Prime Minister's father, helped me land at an airport, and now there I was helping Others. his son welcome the next wave of refugees at the airport. And you should have seen their faces. Obviously, my Arabic is quite atrocious, but um, but we had interpreters, and I was just explaining to them that now I'm a member of parliament, so they sort of understood that. They were tired. You know, it was a long flight. Um, but So they understood, okay, there's a member of parliament greeting me, fine. 
But then when I explained to them that I was a refugee too 40 years ago, just the same age as the baby they were holding, yeah. and that in Canada you could come here as a refugee, yeah. and because we have free health care and free education, you just take advantage of the opportunities that are available to you, and you can be anything you want in this country, including one day becoming a lawyer and a member of parliament, yeah. then you saw the light bulbs go off. Yeah. And people thought, my, my goodness, like this is it's pretty amazing where we've just landed and yeah. the reception that we're getting and the opportunities that are now before us. It was... It was emotional. Like it was, it was a big, big deal. Mom and dad still around? Yep. What do they? What? What did they think? What did they think of what you've done? Well, they're they're my parents. Right? They're, Especially about being at the airport and welcoming refugees. Yeah. Well, they're hyper proud. I mean, they're they're. It's very, very satisfying. It's you know, my dad is more of the strong, silent type, but he's the one who'll brag to his, his cricket buddies on the phone. <laughs> yeah. And my mom was just. She's been like this force of nature right like she most people i still knock on doors now when i knock on doors people are like hey how's your mom doing because they would see her knocking on doors with me during the nomination during the campaign so she was they're both very proud but they're also been actively involved right yeah. because they thought what i was doing was the right thing and they wanted to get behind me so they participated and they're they're proud as any parents would be but um i think they're particularly proud that of the orientation of the government and the work that I've been able to do, both the Parliamentary Secretary for Immigration and now the Parliamentary Secretary for Multiculturalism, assisting with basically erasing divisions, right? We're seeing sort of fissions. We're seeing fissions internationally. We're seeing fissions domestically. We're seeing the rise of right-wing groups. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is reduce that and combat racism, work on anti-discrimination policies. So what I like is that it's continuity. It's stuff that I've cared about since I was 16, and now I get to actually work on policies that bring that to bear in Canada. Awesome. I know you've got a very busy day, and I probably have had you for too long, but <laughs> thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. She put them into a small slim glass jar with a screw top lid. I fingered that jar. I put it in my pocket. She said, Can't go into the woods without them. I smiled at her and laughed. I kept them dry And as long as there were six I'd be fine And as long as there were five Matches in that jar Oh